There we go. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart. And if it's not welcome back, then where you been? Anyway, none of us is as smart as all of us. That's what we say on this podcast. That's right. And I'm Amy Scott in for Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us. It's Tuesday, which means it's time to dive deep into a single topic. And today we're all going to get smarter about how climate issues became so politically divisive. How did this happen? That something as seemingly simple as a gas stove in your kitchen (laughs) makes the Internet explode and becomes a huge culture war topic. Makes me crazy. And here to help us understand all this is Andrew Hoffman. He's a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan and author of How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. Mm. Welcome to the program. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So climate change wasn't always this uh, divisive. I find that hard to believe. I don't remember such a time, but (laughs) walk us through how this uh, started to change and why. Well, it wasn't as divisive um, pre-1997. 1997 is the year of the Kyoto Treaty. And Mm. prior to 97, it was a conversation amongst amongst a bunch of scientists. Uh, But once the Kyoto Treaty came, it became an issue that affected powerful political and economic interests. And so the divide started to happen. In fact, some really nice research by Riley Dunlap and Aaron McCreitch show that the you could start around 1997, Republicans, Democrats, no difference on the position on climate change. And then over time, it just starts to widen with less Republicans believing it's real, more Democrats believing it's real. For those who, who hmm. were alive in 1997, but probably weren't <laughs> paying as much attention to the Kyoto uh, Accords as they should have, remind us, would you, uh, why that was such the turning point? Well, it was the first time they were trying to develop a global treaty on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And to do that, obviously, it's going to affect some industries more than others. It's going to it's going to cost money. Uh, so there's the economic side of it, mm-hmm. and the ideological side of it is the idea that uh, this is going to be more government, government mm-hmm. controlling the market, uh, steering industries in certain directions, picking winners and losers. Use whatever language you want, and uh, that obviously got a number of people quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideological and political divide. But I'm wondering about the this sort of culture wars framing um, mm-hmm. and how it makes it even harder to build consensus. I mean, if you can sort of demonize people who are trying to take our gas stoves, it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it makes it a little bit easier to dismiss. But nobody wants our, our children to have asthma, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, at the beginning, climate change fell into the, the cultural divide in terms of should we regulate the market? Should we start to have a shift in the market, move more towards renewable energy, which obviously has a cost for many people, many investors, many suppliers within the fossil fuel sector? More recently, it has become enmeshed in our more modern partisan divide where anyone on the left uh, opposes anything proposed by the right and anything anyone on the right proposes or opposes anything proposed by people on the left. And so mm-hmm. climate change has been coded as a left-leaning issue. Um, we can uh, identify numerous reasons for that happening. Certainly Al Gore uh, had an influence mm-hmm. on that. His movie, uh, An Inconvenient Truth Called, needed attention to the issue, but perceptions of him uh, made it a, a left-leaning issue and automatically some on the right disliked it. 
Do you suppose it's possible to uncode climate change as a left-leading issue? Because honestly, this is one of those global existential threats that affects everybody, Republican, Democrat, and people in between. And and we have to find some common purpose. And I guess the question is, how hard is it going to be to get there? Well, and that's the challenge. How do we thread that needle? And certainly when we can start to frame climate change as uh, an opportunity for American ingenuity, an opportunity for economic development, uh, developing the technologies of the future, uh, this is a frame that can resonate on both sides of the aisle. Certainly as we look at, for example, the auto sector, mm-hmm. the move into electrics is not a politically motivated move. It's it's where the market is going. And that is something that that can bridge the divide, cross the line between uh, both sides of the issue. That's my hope. But I sit in a business school. <clears throat> that's my hammer. Everything <laughs> looks like a nail. That's right. But but that's how I approach it. In a business school is what are what is the market shift presented in terms of climate change and what are the opportunities for business to develop solutions. But, but, you know, it's tricky, right? Sorry, Amy, to jump in here, but it's tricky if you frame it that way because then people on the left go ballistic. We did a series on Marketplace a number of years ago now called, oh my God, Stephen Beard. It was called Frozen Assets and it was about the Mm. benefits that could be derived economically from a warming planet, right? And how to capitalize on that. And Mm -hmm. I will tell you, our listeners went, went absolutely bananas. <laughs> Crazy. Well, we dared frame this as a, listen, it's an economic thing. Well, at the end of the day, and this is, this is again, the hammer I hold, but if we want to solve this problem, we have to steer the market towards solving it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The market is the most powerful orienting force on earth. And uh, if the market isn't solving it, it, it won't be solved. Business creates the buildings we live and work in, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the forms of mobility we enjoy, the drivetrain under the hood of that, the alternative mobility that replace it, all this comes through the market. And so how do we steer the market? And we all are part of the market, whether it's those of us who actually actively run businesses or those who us consume products, but how, or those of us who vote. And so what does the market of the future look like is a very important question if we really want to solve this problem. It's hard to feel optimistic about private business taking the lead here, though, given, you know, all the research and reporting recently about industries and companies that knew exactly what they were doing and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, launched public information campaigns to try to discredit the science. I mean, I'm talking about Exxon Mobil, of course, and and the fossil fuel industry in general. Um, How much do you think they deliberately caused this kind of shift in public opinion about climate change as an issue that could be bipartisan? Well, well, let's back up for one second, and, and I want to stress that when I say the market, it is not just businesses. The market, the, the government is a player in the market, so is civil society. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would argue that, that we certainly need a stronger role for government in driving the market in this direction. There's no question about that. So the idea that business alone will do this, that's that's not how I'm approaching this. Because as you say, there are certain businesses that will lose in this transition, and they will fight to not lose. Uh, You know, you saw just last week uh, uh, politicians in uh, Wyoming proposing a bill to ban the sale of electric vehicles. Why are they doing this? Because they're trying to protect the domestic fossil fuel industry. Hmm. You're going to find the same resistance in Texas, Louisiana. Um, If someone's going to lose, they're going to fight hard. In fact, it's interesting. Often those who lose fight harder than those who gain. 
And so that that's a, a, a big part of what we're looking at here as well. Does it ever strike you as funny that the, not ha-ha funny, obviously, that um, the, there is such a market, uh, that's the wrong way to say it, there is such market advantage to being on the ball with climate change and being in, in front of the power curve and getting that first mover advantage in some of these industries. Look at Tesla and how much of its market share it has, but let's put Elon Musk aside for a second. D- does it ever strike you as funny that that, uh, is is a thing that Republicans have somehow traditionally, being the the party of big business, are now kind of aligned against. Well, it, it there's a there's going to be a turning point. Certainly, there there is a balance between those who lose and those who win. And at the beginning in the auto sector, you you brought up Tesla. I mean, Tesla was all alone, yeah. and so the attention would be on the incumbents, not the new entrant. But over time, and that's the interesting thing about te- the Tesla story, is when Elon Musk started that, everyone in the auto sector said, this isn't going to work, you're crazy. And now they're chasing Tesla. Yeah. And so he did move the market when the market did not want to move. Yeah. And there's the inertia that has to be overcome. And so uh, it all comes down to who is your constituency? Would I expect the same uh from a senator in Texas, as I would for uh, pick your state that's pretty, you know, Michigan, um, probably not, because the economic implications are far different. Before we let you go, I w- I'm hoping you can give us some hope here. And if you can't, you know, fine. But, um, <laughs> you know, it does seem like public opinion is shifting as the weather gets so destructive mm-hmm. and so crazy. Yeah. And you are seeing at least moderate Republicans you know, say in public opinion polls that they do worry about climate change. I wonder if you see this debate evolving and and how can we find the consensus it's going to take, um, you know, to ensure that we survive? You know, that you're, you're absolutely right. If you, I talked earlier about the widening divide between Republicans and Democrats. That widened in, until around 2010, and then it started to turn around. And moderate Republicans are moving on this issue. Uh, latest surveys I've seen show that 70% of moderate Republicans think that climate change is happening, 50% caused by human mm. action, 55% worried about it. Um, the economics of it are very important. Certainly uh, one driver is uh, insurance companies. Uh, insurance companies mm-hmm. are starting to really get quite mm-hmm. concerned about the payouts that come with this. Once you monetize it, it starts to become part of the economy. Young people are mobilized on this issue. Um, and I'm not just talking, you know, the, the, the favorite term right now is wokeism, but I, I sit in a business school. I see business students that want to solve this problem. They want to, they want to steer the market towards solving it. They don't want to just complain about it. That's what gives me hope is the future generation that wants to roll up their sleeves and do something about it and shifts in public opinion. And, and you're absolutely right, Amy. Uh, when the, the pollsters ask, why did you change your opinion on climate change? The answer is pretty consistent. It's the weird weather we're having. It's the hurricanes mm-hmm. and the droughts and the wildfires. And importantly, they're happening to us. It used to be you could dismiss climate change by saying it's going to happen to somebody else, someplace else in the future. It's happening here. It's happening now. It's happening to people we know. It's happening to our wallets. And that, that changes the conversation. Andrew Hoffman. Yeah, it totally does. Andrew Hoffman is a professor of sustainable enterprise. He's at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. His book on the topic at hand is How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. Andy, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it was a real pleasure, Kai. And uh, and thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Great talking to you. Yeah. 
it uh, the whole they're coming for our gas stove thing. I just I didn't uh, I didn't understand how that happened, but whatever. Yeah, I know it went it went uh, went crazy, wild real yeah. quick. No yeah. one's coming for your gas stove. Just so no. we put no. that out there, like somebody at the Consumer Product Safety Commission right. said, you know. We're looking into re- regulation. We know these things are dangerous. And it's not just about climate change. It's about environmental, right. uh, you know, indoor air pollution, right. which is apparently right. a, a, a scarier and bigger deal than we thought because it's it's a big contributor to childhood asthma. And yeah. so it's just the question of, like, sh- what do we do to make these things safer? I don't think anyone's going to ban gas stoves yet, although there are some local governments that are banning mm-hmm gas appliances in new construction. New construction, so, right. That's a different deal. Yeah, in That's some new construction. Deal. But if you want to cook with gas, you can keep you doing it. Just please turn the vent on. That's all I ask. Tell us uh, would you what you think about the climate crisis, about the climate crisis and culture wars. Also, whether or not you use a gas stove. No, I'm kidding. But you can tell us if you want to. <laughs> um, send us your thoughts. Our number is 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. You can email us if you like. Make me smart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, news. Amy Scott, go. Okay, not to be, like, obsessed with soccer, but just... (laughs) Since we talked about it yesterday, uh, we talked yesterday about Erling Holland of Man yeah. City scoring his fourth hat trick of the season, and you know, it was cool. But yeah. I told my husband about this. We were kind of talking about it afterwards, and he showed me this ad, this TV ad that launched over the weekend. Um, it's a, a little girl standing in an empty stadium, and she says, "Hey, internet, who scored the most goals in international football?" And the Ooh. internet. In the form of scary, overlapping voices that sound kind of like Alexa or Siri answers, Cristiano Ronaldo has scored 118 goals in international football. uh, Isn't it? uh, And then the girl says... I was going to answer this, but no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yep, then the girl says... What about Christine Sinclair? How many goals has she scored in international football? Christine Sinclair has scored 190 goals in international football. There you go. There you go. Christine Sinclair, of course, is a woman from Canada player. She's, you know, by any math, 190 is more than 118. So this ad is um, from a campaign called Correct the Internet. And their goal is really to correct the gender bias that is endemic in Internet search results and to try to make women in sports more visible. Uh, This ad, this campaign was launched when a New Zealand advertising company was researching a pitch and they were looking at stats of women footballers and found that women held many of the sports records, Mm -hmm. but the men would come up first in search results. Um, 
So just case in point, thinking about yesterday's conversation, I decided to look up the hat trick record for English women's football. I couldn't actually find it um, in the time I had. And so it just shows you that it's hard to find these things. They're, They're not front and center. And I'm kind of excited about this idea of correcting the record. Yeah. I will tell you, sorry, just to stay on soccer for one little additional beat. So there's a new women's uh, team here in Los Angeles, Angel City Football Club in the National Women's Soccer League. They're amazing. We went to their home opener. It was crazy. There were so many little girls there. It was so great. It was just unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. It was really cool. Uh, Okay, change of topic. So I just have a very brief editorial comment, and it's about the news floating around today, this morning, Tuesday, the 24th of January, that documents with classified markings on them have been found in the home of Mike Pence, the former vice president of the United States. So look, let's stipulate a couple of things here. Number one, what Donald Trump did with classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago was egregious and not at all similar to what's happening with Biden and now with Mike Pence. Number two... There is nobody, nobody who's been in government for more than eight or 10 years who doesn't have a classified document someplace. We overclassify yeah. in this country to beat the band, right? Um, yeah. and, and look, I'm, I'm, I, this is a little outside the, the bailiwick of this bailiwick of this particular podcast, but you know, I, I have a thing about military and national security and all that jazz because I used to do that for a living. Nobody who's been in government for eight or 10 years or more, doesn't have something. So it is not possible that we can keep going this way because it will just become ridiculous. That's number one. Number two, speaking of ridiculous, Elon Musk, who we spoke about briefly with (laughs) Professor Hoffman, is on trial, as you may or may not know, over his thinking about taking Tesla private at 420 a share, funding secured. I would just encourage you to go to Bloomberg or go to any of the the big news sites that are updating this trial in live texts and live tweets. What is happening is kind of amazing because the richest man in the world is getting raked over the coals over his behavior on Twitter, which is, number one, just interesting to see. And by interesting, I mean really gratifying. But number two, ironic because (laughs) he owns the company now. I know. Sorry. I just had to get that in there. I had to get in there. I, I frankly, I, know, think, I feel like we need a new segment for right, the absurd. Right, right. right. <laughs> we totally should. Let's revamp the show. I just, uh, I think he's in some trouble. I think Elon Musk is in some trouble in this trial because mm. he went out there and did this thing that you can't really do if you're the CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company. And then he said, "Oh, just kidding. Sorry, never mind." It's not that way that works. It's not the way it works at yep. all. Well, I'm glad you've been watching it because. Well, we, I just, we all need the TLDR or that's right. too long that's right. couldn't stomach. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. TLCS. Anyway. <laughs> all right. I think that's it for the news yes, fix. Let's is. do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. <laughs> All right. So last week, uh, Sam Fields and I were hosting and we answered a question about diesel prices. Mm. And we were wondering if anyone's done the math on the cost Mm. effectiveness of a diesel versus gas powered car, considering that diesel is so much more expensive than gas right now. And it turns out one of our listeners has done the math. Hi, this is Kevin from San Luis Obispo, California. We have two cars. One's a diesel, one's a regular. When prices like they are today, January 2023, our diesel is a lot more expensive than regular. 
the efficiencies of my diesel vehicle actually make the cost about the same over the long run. Hmm. When diesel hmm. and regular costs are closer together, the efficiency of the of the diesel uh, makes it less expensive per mile. Obviously, pandemic changed our driving habits and all that stuff, but definitely more efficient for the diesel. Thank you. That's wild. I, I had no idea. I will say, ever since I got myself an EV, I'm one of those uh, people that, um, you know, has has gotten away from gas, and so I don't pay a lot of attention to gas prices anymore. Good for you. Uh, thank you. Uh, but when I do drive by a gas station and I happen to look, it blows me away how expensive diesel is. It's like six fifty out here now. It's I know, crazy. right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely blows me away. Uh, okay, so uh, before we go, as we always do, this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Here you go. This is Mike from Rockford. I wanted to say, since a listener to the, every single Make Me Smart episode that I knew everything Mike. about the theme music, wow. but listening to your latest episode, I realized there was a tambourine in that ending theme music Wait, that I'd never picked up on before. As a former percussionist, the, any auxiliary percussion really speaks to me. <laughs> And I thought that was super cool. Thanks for being so reliably awesome. And I always look forward to the next one. Take care. Man. Oh, my gosh. Now we're all going to be listening for the tambourine. Well, we are. We're going to let the theme music play a little bit. But also, how amazing is it that somebody has listened to all the episodes of this podcast? Because I I will say, and I will deny this if anybody repeats it, I have not listened to all the episodes of this podcast. So, (laughs) you know. You don't listen to us when we're filling in for I I, I actually have a real problem. So this is true for Marketplace and it's true for this podcast. actually liberating. I I can say anything I want. I I have a real problem listening to somebody else do my job. It's it's totally true. I kind of can't do it. I kind of can't do it. Uh, oh, this is so freeing to hear because, you know, good. I happen to be one of the people. I know, I know and I, I appreciate it when I can have a day off because you and others are filling in, but I cannot listen. I'm like, no, 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 not, uh-uh, not doing so, it. No, I think we need to talk more about this offline. Right, that, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Right. Uh, so, look, we need some things from you. Number one, your answers to the Make Me Smart question, please. Also, questions of of uh, the appropriate genre, genre for this podcast for What Do You Want to Know Wednesdays. You can get them to us. Uh, 508-827-6278 is how you do that. 508-U-B-SMART, as you probably heard a zillion times, Mike. Sorry to keep repeating it for you, pal. Okay, before we listen for the tambourine, Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg-Seeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing by Becca Weinman. Okay, listening more, listening more. Oh, right there. Oh, yeah. Auxiliary percussion. There you go. And also, I don't think you're ever a former percussionist, right? You're just a percussionist. Anyway, Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez are the ones who composed that tambourine-flavored music. Our acting senior producer is Melissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Our vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Nice. There's tambourine. How about that? Learn something new on this podcast every day.